0: inspiring and energizing role models. I hope you use what you learn here to be inspired about what you can do in your business and beyond. So today's guest, and I'm so honored to have her here and delighted, the guest on the podcast today is Martha Beck. Writer, speaker, and life coach Martha Beck is the author of several memoir and self-help books, some of which, to her continued astonishment, are bestsellers. Readers who enjoyed Expecting Adam, Finding Your Own North Star, Steering by Starlight, and Finding Your Way in a Wild New World can also find her unique blend of humor, science, and spirituality every month in *O* oh, The Oprah Magazine. Martha's newest book is her first foray into fiction, Diana Herself, An Allegory of Awakening, will be available in April 2016. I'm really looking forward to reading that. Thank you, Martha, for being here. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a delight.
0: (laughs) So um, we... uh, you've had such an interesting career path from academia to writing self-help books and life coaching. And I'm, I'm guessing your business in its current form isn't at all what you were expecting back at Harvard. So what is it that drew you to this work, this, this business in particular? A
1: complete bumbling naivete. <laughs> um, I didn't expect any kind of business when I was at Harvard. I, I just thought I'd go into academia with what I'd seen my father do all my Friends growing up were faculty brats, and because I grew up in a college town, and it never even occurred to me to do anything else. I liked school, so why move on, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I just thought I'd be a professor, and it turned out I didn't really love professing that much. <laughs> I loved learning the subject matter, but I, didn't, I, I wasn't interested in teaching uh, sociology, which was my field and my doctorate, as, as much as I was interested in the actual facts of people's lives. So right from the beginning, I was more interested in my students as people than as learners of a a set of, you know, arbitrary ideas and theories. And they started asking me if I would just talk to them outside of class. And I was like, whoa, uh, okay. (laughs) And um, they just kept coming and paying me. And ultimately, I was like, oh, well, if I put everything in a book, they will go away. (laughs) (laughs) I So I wrote my first self-help book, Finding Your Own North Star, and put everything I knew about, you know, figuring out how to live a life that worked into that. And it backfired horribly, and people just kept coming. (laughs) They read the book, and they still wanted to talk to me. I was like, but it's only $20. Just read it and leave me alone. But they did not. They kept coming, and I'm glad. And then I read in the paper that I was a life coach. And I was like, what's that? It sounds cheesy, <laughs> <laughs> but it's stuck. So here we are.
0: Well, I know you've talked in uh, interviews that I've heard of you that, um, I mean, you really kind of developed that life coaching practice as part of the conversations you were having with students. They would oh, come- yeah.
1: It was all about, it was really about trying to be happy myself. I was just trying to figure out how to be happy. I was... Uh, a young mother, I'd done the, the thing that people in my generation did. Um, you know, the feminist movement had, had sort of taken hold of us before we had children. And then every, so everybody tried to move into the prestigious jobs that were male dominated and then have children. And it was, it was a bit, uh, dicey there for those of us who did it in that style. It was not, it is not technically possible, I have learned.
2: <laughs> so I
1: was just trying to figure out how to live my life. And I ended up uh, coming up with methodologies just for myself that I would then ask my students if they could, you know, they'd come for advice, I'd say, here's what works for me. And it worked for them, too. So, boy, howdy. Why not?
0: <laughs> well, and you've had such an extraordinary impact on people through your books, through appearances on Oprah and and on the, in the magazine and and so many other places, working with Deepak Chopra and um, is is that something that you in the course of doing that do you have a particular intention in mind to accepting those kinds of opportunities?
1: It just it's my I just stay on the path that I found when I was just trying to be happy. I I like to say my only plan for life is I exist in continuous creative response to whatever is present. (laughs)
0: That's great. So
1: it's, it's just a, it's sort of up in the air when somebody asks me to do something, I see if it feels right. It's very simple. I mean, when I, when I wrote it down, literally I've spent my entire career saying this. if something feels really good and it makes you happy and you enjoy it, you should do it more. (laughs) And if it makes you miserable and it makes you want to stab yourself and everyone you love, Maybe you shouldn't do it as much. <laughs> that's the that's... entire philosophy. <laughs>
0: that sounds like massively good advice.
1: <laughs> yeah, and people keep paying me to say it. And I'm like, I'm just going to say the same thing. And they're like, that's okay. And I, well, wouldn't you rather just read it in a book? I'll tell you for free right now. They're like, no, we'll pay you.
0: So <laughs> I can-
1: yeah,
0: but it just keeps happening. <laughs> well, you make it all sound so very simple, but I uh, when I worked with you, I, I met we met in Africa in the and in, on your star retreat, and I was blown away by your ability to just draw on uh, this body of knowledge that you have floating around in there, of uh, of any kind of resource that is called for in in the situation of of drawing on something, and also your profound. Compassion for people. Um, both of those, I think, just left all of us feeling very affected and moved, and, and life cha- in a life-changing way in a lot of play- a lot of cases.
1: Well, thank you very much. I mean, I think that's a tribute to how dysfunctional I truly am, because <laughs> I spent so much of my life trying to deal with really significant unhappiness, and and I also had a few challenges. Everybody has life challenges. And I didn't cope well, so I had to learn how to cope well. And for that reason, I read everything I could find that would possibly help. And really, the only, seriously, the only intention of my business when I formed it was to help alleviate suffering. That's Mm -hmm. it. Alleviate not, not even just human suffering, but the suffering of all beings. So thank you very much. I'm glad it affected you that way. And it was all just me selfishly trying to learn how to be happy. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you you did both very well. So um, it, it certainly sounds like you're living your life out of that principle. And and hearing you talk about your um your kind of impact that you want to have in the work that you're doing um by uh, by what you just described is do your do you see things in terms of like a value system, the reason I'm asking is that I, I think that people's conscious desire to have impact in some way is very informed by their values, what they hold dear, what they see as most important. Is, is what you're doing now a reflection of that, or do you see it another way?
1: Um, I kind of see it another way, because values implies a sense of judgment that this is good and that is bad. Mm. And really, my only value is that I really don't want to suffer or to see other beings suffer. And so instead of saying, here's my overall value and I'm going to go impose it on the world, as I show up with each client or as I show up to each article I write or each book, it really is just saying to myself, how can I best alleviate suffering at this moment? It turns out that truth is a central component of happiness. And so that, but it's you see, it's not because I think people should be honest. It's because being honest makes people happy. So it's not so much a value as just a very pragmatic measure to help people not suffer. Hmm. That's my primary value. I don't like suffering.
0: <laughs> well, and the the difference is that you're you're prepared to go to great lengths to not have that be the case. I I was in your integrity cleanse course just recently, and that whole issue of integrity and could you talk a bit about that and what that meant to you in that in offering that that tool and process
1: yeah um I just I had done every you know all I've been doing my whole life is trying to figure out how to be happy and if I figure something out I run around telling it to as many people as I can and so I realized that in some ways I was out of integrity because I was um, tolerating behavior it was kind of like I wasn't following the reverse of the golden rule the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But um, the converse is do not allow others to do unto you what you would never do to them. Hmm. It had not been an integrity in that sense. I had been like, I would deal with somebody that I thought was sort of pleasy, and then I would go off and I would you know, do my work to be okay with that and not to feel any suffering over it. And uh, one of my great um, role models is Byron Katie who's a spiritual teacher, and I had a chance to talk to her, and she's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. <laughs> you completely in your integrity, and if people view it negatively, that's when you get the real learning, so you've got to stay true to yourself at all times, or you'll suffer, and I was like, "Woo!" so I decided I, I would do, I put myself on an integrity cleanse, <laughs> which I'm still on, and I decided I wouldn't do anything, not a facial expression, not a not a polite hello, if it was not really in my integrity. And I made that a central focus of my day. And it was like the last thing that had been buffering me from the sort of natural flow of, of happiness for no reason that makes my golden retriever so excited about life. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so it's a very, very high standard of integrity, but it's not a moral issue and I have no judgment people who lie. It's just that I don't want to suffer. And I would prefer that others not suffer either.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, you describe that on a level, it, it really takes an extraordinary level of consciousness to be aware to the point of, I mean, even your facial expressions. And does that, does it feel like a big effort? Or is it all in alignment with this central thing of, of not wanting not suffering. suffering? Yeah
1: not suffering. It's so conducive to happiness that if I forget to do it or if I, um, for some reason, decide not to do it, say I'm in a social situation I decide to tell polite social lies, suffering reminds me to do it. I don't, I don't like pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's just that when I'm feeling bad, I do whatever it takes to feel good. And I've found that absolute integrity is the it's the capstone of everything. It's the ultimate self help tool. Just always figure out what you really truly believe, what you really truly desire, and then act with absolute honesty no matter what people do and boom. You'll be happy. I really <laughs> I have found this to be true, and I am so excited
0: about it. <laughs> yeah, and I have found that to be true at the times when I've been been able to do that, and I uh, it's an ongoing it's an ongoing challenge for me. So um, it's I I think it it really goes to the heart of uh, this whole alleviating suffering um, that in all of us, and is that is that part of a Kind of mission that you have? You said you want to alleviate suffering. So is that a way in which you want to have impact?
1: I used to think in terms of mission.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I came to view that as as, as uh, an expression of my ego. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to go fix something. I'm going to make something right in the world. Right. And the older I get, and the more time I spend meditating, the more I see that that's really not my job. My job in the world is to live the best way I possibly can, you know, to live in honesty and compassion and the mission takes care of itself. Be mm-hmm. much more mission driven. And now I'm just, I just try to be integrity driven and the mission unfolds in the most startling ways. That's what's fascinating is that when you stop trying to make things have impact, the impact goes through the ceiling.
0: <laughs> It's true. I, I And I understand what you're saying about, um, in a way, there's sort of an imposition of saying, I'm going to go out there and have this impact. And it's something that some people that I've talked to have objected to about that word impact. And I can completely see that interpretation of the word. And I I, I also hear what you're saying about um, Getting older, I'm I'm less concerned about what I think other people should be doing or what um, uh, what kind of effect I can have on them. It's really centrally only me that I can absolutely manage.
2: Right,
0: right. And, and
1: trying to manage other people is such a chore, and trying to fix their lives is such a mistake. And it's I mean, exhausting. Was, <laughs> and I was like, oh, oops, never mind. <laughs>
0: Well, I, kn- I know you've talked about in, uh, in one of your books about um, how you came to realize this in the course of the, the life coaching work that you were doing with them of, of uh, just kind of sitting back and, and allowing things to unfold for them. It's, it's uh, What's the expression that you use something about, I respectfully don't care?
1: I respectfully do not care. Um, whatever works for you. you know, I was writing down something that I believe to be true And it's probably a little bit too spiritual for most people in our secular, in secular society. And I was going to water it down. And so I wrote the words, if you disagree, and then I thought, I don't care. (laughs) So I I wrote down, if you disagree, I respectfully do not care. So I fully encourage everyone to embrace their own particular viewpoint on things. And I am going to... Express my particular viewpoint without any judgment of others, but with the with the hope that it if as I discover ways to suffer less myself, I can help others alleviate their own suffering. That really is my one and only value.
0: Hmm. That's great. Can you talk a little bit about when you wrote Finding Your Way in a Wild New World? It was um, it it seemed to have a bit of a sense of mission around it in terms of bringing people together around a central kind of philosophy or approach. Philosophy is probably the wrong word, but could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I was much more mission-driven at the time. It Mm -hmm. it occurred to me while I was out with my friends tracking rhinoceros that um, if enough people who are focused on the alleviation of suffering, including the suffering of animals and natural ecosystems, if enough of us combine our efforts, um, we could bring a healing into the world that would would help repair uh, plants, animals, people, the entire biosphere, everything living. And I really got swept up in a tide of hope because I'd sort of given up hope. I read the science of you know the ecological sciences and they basically said look you know we've we've trashed the planet let's just move to mars and that didn't work very well for me so i was just depressed (laughs) and then i got this um i don't know i got this overwhelming vision i guess you could call it of of a way that humans could gather to create healing and i got so excited about it and it definitely felt like a mission and I ran around like crazy, and I wrote the book, yes, 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 let's do this mission. But part of the mission was being more and more deeply aware of one's own inner condition, inner peace, and level of awakeness, you know, mm-hmm. what in Asia they would call awakening. And as I, so I started meditating a lot more than I had. I used to meditate 20 minutes or something. There's something about meditating an hour or more that, that something flipped over in me. And I started to just see it very differently. And I realized that the mission is there, but it's not mine. It is, uh, in my view, it is a, a decision of consciousness, capital C, that if if the consciousness of the universe wishes the, us to survive on this planet, it'll happen, and it may happen through a coordinated effort of humans, but it will be because we are taking care of our own, Issues. It will be because we are loving ourselves mm-hmm. that we finally love the planet. So it, just in the past few years, I've switched from being very, very mission-driven to feeling like the mission is best served simply by compassion toward the self, which then overflows in compassion toward all things.
0: Yes, yeah. That's great. Is uh, Are there ways that you now... Now that this has kind of shifted for you and you're, you're, you've kind of – I mean, in a way, it sounds like you have come full circle in a sense because the work he did originally as a life coach, it really was all about working with individuals to kind of come to terms with themselves and and – have peace within themselves to a large extent. Does it feel like that? Or does this feel like that spiral thing where you kind of come back to it, but you're at a whole new level with it?
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. It is a spiral. Everything's moving forward in a spiral form. And mm-hmm. um, you come back into phases of the creative process over and over again. But if you're actually living creatively, each each turnaround, the cycle moves you forward. So, yeah, I, I do believe... Now that serving our, using those individualized goals, it catapults you into a place where you realize that your, your own consciousness has effects beyond anything you ever would have dreamed. Mm -hmm. And when you reach that, you realize, oh, there's a way to do things that is not about physically rolling up your sleeves. And I mean, it may involve that, but really it's about alignment with i mean for lack of a better phrase i use the phrase with what wants to happen that you it's about finding this place of peace and if you are completely centered in this place of inner peace what happens is you are moved to do the right things Mm -hmm. the rest of of people anything you want to help with um and you don't actually have to do it so my my undergraduate degree was in chinese and um I never really understood that until I ran into, (laughs) I mean, I didn't know any Chinese people when I started, I didn't even eat Chinese food, I was from Utah, (laughs) but um, it says in my favorite book, The Tao Te Ching, in the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added, in the pursuit of enlightenment, every day something is dropped, Often, less do you need to force things until you arrive at non-action, when nothing is done, nothing is left undone.
0: Yeah, I I love love that quote.
1: I was like, what? What?" (laughs) I read it and I thought, well, that sounds whippy, but what? (laughs) And now I'm really starting to feel it. When I spend my time becoming deeply aligned with joy, with peace, with love, stuff happens. And in my coach training, everybody loves to call it magic. I shy away a little bit from that term because it smacks of, you know, egoically making something go your way Mm -hmm. of controlling nature. And I don't believe we control nature. I believe that what we call magic is just a part of nature we haven't yet understood. But I have to say, I have seen many, many things that I would call miracles that come about as a result of being incredibly scrupulously committed to your own happiness and your own integrity. It just, it fractals outward. And becomes a, a group. Right now, my obsession is about villages. That if you, because you go into complete integrity, what happens is a village of the people you love forms around you, mm-hmm. and you don't have to do it. It just forms. This is what I've been noticing since my integrity cleanse.
0: Well,
2: <laughs> and that
1: that forming is what creates the larger social movements.
0: Well, I think it's that clarity. Within yourself that has an energy on its own. I mean, we're getting kind of into woo-woo territory, but I'm totally down with that. But um, it, there's an energy around that level of clarity that just draws people. I've seen it. I've seen it many times. So I, I mean, I, I see that in people's connection with you to some extent too, in the contact that we've had. So, um, and
1: it just—it's it, the only. It just keeps showing up in my life. Yeah. It just- showing up and and I'm glad I was educated very scrupulously not to believe this stuff too easily because there's a lot of there's a lot of nonsense out there but there's also something real and when you are very very scientific that is you really look at the evidence and you let yourself be driven by the data as we always said in my degree programs um, that's weirdly enough when you realize oh the only way I can Hope with reality is by admitting that something that something supernatural is at work here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the only thing that fits the data. And it's not the orthodoxy of our secular belief system. So it's a big um, jump off a short pier. But as I said, I respectfully no longer care.
0: <laughs> well, like you, I was trained as a scientist. So I know where you're coming from on that. Sure. And um, yeah, it took me a long time into my well, into my 50s really before I got to the point of of accepting this kind of level of stuff that's going on and uh, we're, it's not necessarily tangible or measurable. It's just in its effects that we see it. So I love what you said about um, people just getting clear within themselves. I, the wording used was a little different, but um, I think that is – Kind of in the in a sense, the essence of the impact that I've been talking with people about it's not about make it happen or you know even I, I gave a teleseminar today about planning it's it's not the plan that has the the energy in it it's the planning
1: mm, yeah, if it's done and you keep using the word energy and I use that word, and some of my friends really roll their eyes, which <laughs> is good because we want to be as skeptical as we can to avoid going too far. But right. you're right, there's an energetic um, quality that is like a frequency and, and it is becoming measurable. I, I talked to a doctor the other day, who also I met on the star by the way, a different star from the one you went to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she said she'd been to a conference she never would have gone to and before, but some other doctor dropped out. And this man got up and he said, look, I'm not gonna tell you what to believe, I'm just gonna tell you what we can measure. We can measure the electromagnetic frequencies coming from the heart. We can measure how they affect um, objects and um, things like wave frequencies in the immediate environment. We can measure the way they change when you go into a condition that feels to you like peace. We can measure the effect that this has on your patients. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. We are getting sensitive enough to know that this is real.
2: Mm.
1: So, yeah, I think some scientists have to die before it becomes um Conventional wisdom—that's how science proceeds, one funeral at a time. Shamus famously said, "Right," but it's happening.
0: Well, I knew once physics got on board, people are more and more talking about physics in this context. So I knew once physics got on board, which I think of as the kind of "quote-unquote" hardest science, that uh, the tide was turning. So
1: it's the weirdest science too, and and I try—I <laughs> read a lot of layman's physics, and I try not to get too excited about. What it means, you know, like, oh wow, quantum mechanics means that I can make a Ferrari with my mind. I um, I want to avoid that kind of
2: tendency. <laughs> yeah.
1: But the the fact that matter is um, energy focused by uh, the attention of consciousness does seem to be the literal truth, and that takes you to a whole different worldview, mm-hmm. where matter is no lo- consciousness is no longer an artifact of matter. Matter is an artifact of consciousness. And that worldview shifts everything.
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. I, uh, My my brother is a physicist, so I, I grew up with someone who was, show me the facts, show me the facts. And um, now that that tide has turned, it's really, um, there are facts to support that. So what it's you very just funny, described,
1: I, yeah. I reading about a scientist who, went to, he, he poo pooed a study where they showed that people's bodies react to pictures of frightening or arousing pictures five seconds before they actually see the picture, and he didn't believe it, so they asked him to come be part of the study, and sure enough, his body reacted five seconds before he saw the wow. picture, and they said, well, what do you think about it? He said, I haven't changed my beliefs in the slightest, and they're like, <laughs> And why did it work? And he said, "Oh yeah, I'll have to give that some thought later." <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've heard of similar kinds of findings like that. It's it's pretty extraordinary that we can perceive something before we're actually shown it. That was that was pretty amazing. And yeah, I mean, it's it's the thing with yeah. belief, belief systems they they don't shift on a dime necessarily, and unless you're open enough to be prepared. To Nor do, do they that. shift
2: facts. They yeah. shift
1: the opening of um, they shift with the dropping of outmoded ideas, which is why in the pursuit of enlightenment, every day something is dropped, and that is a challenge to the ego, and that becomes psychologically difficult for people.
2: So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: the deal. Well, and then my... you
0: go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead.
1: I was just saying, and then if you get locked in ego to the point where you stop looking at what's in front of you, you begin to suffer as a function of your mind trying to get you toward the truth. So that's how I got into all this, as I keep saying. It's just I'm looking at what causes suffering and what doesn't.
0: Do you feel that because you've kind of shifted in this way more recently that your business will shift too? Most of the people listening to the podcast, or at least many of them are, are entrepreneurs, so I think they'd be interested in... In hearing the kind of business side of things, I know you just completely totally did,
1: and I'm very excited about, about it because what happened, you know, I only did the integrity cleanse a few months ago, and then I realized that what the integrity cleanse does is it rearranges your so it rearranges your social circle because when you tell the exact truth, people who don't like the way you think go away from you, right, and people who do like the way you think come toward you, and this means that you now have a group of people who are like-minded. And then there is a set of conditions, and my PhD is in sociology, so there's a set of conditions that facilitates the most functional manifestation of a of group life, and it, we can find it in the way villages formed, you know, from the time humans evolved. And I realized that one of those, the first, the the first stage of community building is for everybody to find their own truth and be be willing to to be seen, and to be different from the other people and yet still accept it. So that's what my coaching system is about. But then there's another part of the group interaction where, and I call it meaning. So the first stage is belonging and the second stage is meaning. And I'd been having a lot of business meetings with my staff and my team, but we had not had anything that was about the deeper meaning of their lives. We would have business meetings, which are similar to war councils in a, village, but we had no um, ceremonies. We had no ceremonies that were devoted toward the happiness of individuals and their search for meaning in their greater lives, which is what we're all about. So I was like, oh, my gosh, we have to do this right away. (laughs) So I established every other week we have a business meeting. And on the alternate weeks, we have a ceremony that is simply to talk about the meaning of our lives, the meaning of our business, and what's going on with each of us. And my staff went Bananas, they were so happy. <laughs> business picked up like, whoa! It was, I mean, the, the response, is, it was so strange. And who knows if it's causally linked. But the, the effect on my business, apparently, well, I'll say this. At the same time, uh, my company started doing much, much better for reasons we, we're not really sure why.
2: it <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: in time with this shift um, toward greater integrity for the group. And the ability for people to express their truth within the, the group, and that is now fundamental to my business, and it's having really great effects so far.
0: Wow, that's fantastic! I mean, what an extraordinary thing to build in that level of connection based on really deep meaning for every individual in the company. I mean, it's it's that's very unique, and it's I can see how that would be profoundly shifting it even in if only from the point of view of the experience of the people in it but it looks like it's it might be connected to um, what they do and therefore how business is going
1: yeah I mean maybe their enthusiasm has filtered through or whatever but um, things are doing much better and I found myself saying something really interesting in our last ceremony um, people were expressing their, fear of belonging so deeply to something that was just economic and may disappear. You know, they, the idea is you could be fired from a job at any time, you know, the job model. And I said, we came, our culture is based on a factory model. Um, and in a factory, you only stay together so you can make money. But I want it to be based on a village model. And in a village, you make money so you can stay together.
0: Mm, I love that.
1: And everybody just went, Oh, I mean, I could see physically, because we do this virtual meeting where you can see everyone like the Brady Bunch on a screen. <laughs> I literally saw their, their faces change to this expression of overwhelming relief that they were in a place and in a group of people who cared about each other. Mm-hmm. And that's not supposed to happen in a factory. That's the whole Model T, you know, Henry Ford thing is, It's supposed to be somebody who just gets set in place like a robot and puts the same widget in the same slot every day, all day, and they don't even have to speak English. But, you know, the turnover in Henry Ford's factories was something like 90% per month.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: Because you can't, people are not machines and we're finally figuring that out. And our whole culture is a factory culture. I think we need to get beyond it.
0: I love that. I'm, uh, I'm actually reading a book right now called Firms of Endearment, um, which you might enjoy. It's, it's kind of a, a bit of a consultant-speak kind of book, but the essence of the book is that businesses that do the best – economically are also the ones that are concerned with the welfare of everyone connected. So it just perfectly, I mean, you've kind of taken that idea to another level with the approach that you're using, but it's really this village model of you inherently belong. You're part of this village because of what you believe, what you see as most important. Would that be fair to say?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then there's a, there's a sense of that, that, elusive security that people look for in in work it's not based on economics it's based on this very deep connection that you have of, of shared belief value whatever term you want to put to it is that am i capturing it
1: oh yeah absolutely and if you watch television i love television i was raised without it and so i na- i <laughs> would never deprive anyone of it um but you'll see a lot of shows that are about work groups, law firms, hospitals with teams of doctors, and um, you always see even even detectives. What you're seeing there is a love relationship that is familial. Yes, the, the people on in these work teams, like the, the partners in the police force or the doctors or whatever, they love each other. And that is fundamental to the success of the show. We want to watch people love each other. And we the whole factory model actually says, no love allowed.
2: <laughs> That's right.
1: Not marry another factory, but we're going to keep emotion out of this. And it's just wrong-handed. It's not how humans evolved. It doesn't work long term.
0: Well, it's kind of dying as a business model, too. So um, I don't know how long that will take, but it, it seems to me that it's, it's kind of – there's signs of it fading away in favor of, of what you're describing. So that's awesome. It, it
1: has to because, again, you don't want turnover of 90% per month. No. And that will do when they're treated too mechanistically. And yeah. more than ever because we've, we've left the factory era. And we're into an age of, of information, and information trading, it, it doesn't even matter if you're in the same building anymore, but it does matter if you care about each other, where the opposite used to be the case.
0: Right, yeah. Martha, is there something that you would kind of offer to people, and uh, I guess advice is a word that I can use, of uh, that you would share with another Um, entrepreneur or business owner who is asking themselves, how can I create that kind of environment? How can I be part of this village of people that are, are really connecting with each other in their business and outside of it in a way that's so powerful and so healing and so positive?
1: Well, what took me to it was my integrity cleanse when I just decided I will ask myself every time I take an action, Do I sit on this chair or do I stand up? Do I have a glass of water or a cup of coffee? Everything has I have to stop just for a fraction of a second and check what's the truest, what is truest for me. And I don't just agree with people idly anymore. I only say what I think is true. And that's quite challenging because sometimes, (laughs) sometimes what you have to say is not socially welcome, but it does immediately begin changing your social world to a world that is coherent with your deepest truth
2: mm.
1: and that is the same as saying it takes you to the people you love
2: mm.
1: and then your business becomes the people you love and it's it's one of it's a very poorly kept secret that people who love each other at business do better than people who don't
0: <laughs> i love that that's that is wonderful to uh, to is, offer. Well,
1: I to say, listen. Love sells better than hate.
0: Right on. <laughs> well, Martha, thank you so much for everything that you've shared today. I'm uh, I'm, I'm I knew this would kind of take on a, a life of its own, and it and uh, we went it far ranging into science and um, uh, and uh, just realms of of energy and and uh, really looking at how a business can be structured and still be successful. So thank you for sharing all of that with us and for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. And thank you for the work you're doing too, because you're, you're getting it out to everyone.
0: That's <laughs> what we need. Thank you. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to, to do that? Um,
1: go to my website, um, email info at com, And, um, I also call, for the longest time, ever since I established a website, I've called it My Village.
0: Mm -hmm. Come
1: visit the village.
0: That's great. Well, thank you. And thank you to everyone for being here. Join us for more podcasts on impact. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast channel on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. So you'll be notified as soon as new podcasts are available. Thank you to everyone listening for being here. And until next time, keep that positive flow of energy going in your business so you can have your own impact.